Good morning. This morning we begin once again with the meditative cultivation of compassion. And as we've done in the past, we focused on envisioning freedom from the coarsest level, the most obvious or evident level or dimension of suffering, namely blatant suffering, suffering of suffering ourselves and others. So in Buddhism it's not called compassion when we direct it towards ourselves. It's called authentic motivation. It's called authentic or right intention. It's called renunciation or spirit of emergence from samsara, all of the above. And when we direct it outwards then we call it compassion. But it's really the same thing, directed inwardly, directed outwardly. But now to remind you of the, the Mahayana liturgy, which I do find enormously meaningful. Again, as with loving-kindness, so, for the liturgy for cultivating compassion, begins with a question. Why couldn't we all be free of suffering and the causes of suffering? May we be free. May I free us. And may the Guru, the Deity, bless me that I may be so enabled. So, the refrain is essentially very similar. All of us wish to be free of blatant suffering. Dogs, cats, animals, every sentient being. Sentient means feeling pain or pleasure. That's sentient. So that's what all sentient beings have in common. And we all wish to be free of suffering, especially the most obvious kind. So it's quite remarkable when we consider how much human intelligence there is. And there's an, an enormous amount of human intelligence. So many smart people in the business world, in government, in science, in education, and so forth. I mean, there's so much intelligence, and all of us intelligent human beings want to be free of suffering. It's quite remarkable, isn't it? That with all that intelligence and all sharing a similar wish, so few people experience less and less suffering as they get older. That is really odd. I mean, if they were all, if we were all stupid, you know, and just, and we're all amnesiacs and had no imagination, then it'd be understandable, but that's not the case. So, while we all share this wish to be free of suffering, where we seem to really fall apart ever so often is something that one would expect might not be that difficult to identify. And that is, what are the actual causes of suffering? Because, of course, if you don't like the fruit, you have to get to the underlying cause. I mean, it's just common sense. But it's quite remarkable. Quite remarkable. So, over the last 50 years, according to people like Martin Seligman and others, the rates of depression in the, especially the industrialized world, the develop, so-called developed world, were very well developed in depression. <laughs> I guess that's why we're called the well-developed world, because the traditional world, you know, traditional cultures, they're not as advanced as we are in experiencing depression when there's nothing to be depressed about. That really takes some work, but we have really developed in that regard. And so here is depression, you know, so common, and then general anxiety disorder and insomnia and low self-esteem and so forth and so on. So human misery all over the place. And somehow, kind of a dearth of knowledge, what are the underlying causes? Are they, I mean, bottom line is, are the causes of misery, especially of mental, are they intrinsic? Are we just built that way? Is that why? Maybe that's why. Is that no matter how intelligent you are, it doesn't matter, because you are just made to suffer through brain chemistry, through genetics, through having parents that weren't perfect. You know? <laughs> Hate it when that happens, you know. But at least there's somebody to blame. 
So maybe that's the reason. Maybe we all are suffering even well into old age and dying miserable because we're just made that way. That could be. That could be. Or maybe we just haven't skillfully identified what the true causes are. And also there's some massive, massive misinformation out there. One I was reading, I think it was in the New York Times a year or two ago. Just, I read it, my jaw dropped. It was by a psychiatrist. So, that would assume he's very intelligent and well-educated. It's not so easy to be a psychiatrist, let alone to be good enough to be cited in the New York Times. That's a pretty reputable piece of media. And he said, all mental, all mental problems, all mental disorders, all mental problems are really nothing more than brain disorders. My jaw dropped. I think, oh, that means psychiatry is certifiably insane. If that's their best shot, if that is, if he's representing, of course he's not representing the whole discipline, but he was quoted, and my jaw dropped. Well, that means no matter what, what troubles you, maybe it's your spouse just died, maybe you know, maybe you had childhood abuse, maybe, maybe there's all kinds of reasons, but no, it's just a brain disorder. And if it's a brain disorder, you know what you need. You need drugs or surgery, because if that's the cause, then that's the remedy. And I was similarly dumbfounded 22 years ago when in a conference, I'll make this really short, but when the Dalai Lama was meeting with, I'll just say this, somebody very, very high up in the U.S. government dealing with mental health and was priding himself on all of the wide array of designer drugs for depression. And the Dalai Lama said, yeah, but isn't depression caused by different things? Sometimes brain chemistry, sometimes environment, sometimes all kinds of things, all kinds of reasons, objective and subjective, physiological, psychological, spiritual, existential, can give rise to depression. So don't you take in, how do you take that into account when you're treating it? And the response was from this enormously prestigious man, doesn't matter what the causes are, the drugs work anyway. And what we know is they suppress the symptoms, but not one of them cures the disorder, not one. And that's generally true of psychopharmaceutical drugs. They manage the symptoms, which means they suppress the symptoms. So if that's true, if the materialists are right, then the causes of suffering are having a brain. So you do the math, you know. One brain, you got suffering. No brain, you got no suffering. So I think the materialists are all saying we should just all have, you know, as little brain as possible. They really strike me, and pardon this, it's a little bit harsh, but I mean it with tongue-in-cheek. Not really. Is <laughs> anybody who's enjoyed the Harry Potter movies, do you remember the Dementors? They come and they suck the, they suck the soul out of you. Give, they give you the kiss, and they suck the soul out of you. They leave you alive, but as a mere shell, and your soul is gone forever, and everything is gloom and darkness and hopelessness. And even being with them, you feel hopelessness, and all happy thoughts and virtue vanishes. They're called Dementors. Anybody who tells you you're just a brain and all your problems are just biological. I think they're dementors. I really do. And they're just waiting to kiss you. Purse up. When they come, purse up. So what are the true causes of suffering? Well, anger would be one candidate. It's not the only one. It's not true for all. But for blatant suffering, certainly among the three poisons, anger is a top candidate. Could we be free? In terms of remedies, in terms of the three higher trainings, ethics really could be helpful. 
We're reducing the amount of blatant suffering in the world. So, as we venture into the practice, which we'll do momentarily, we, as we view ourselves, who do you think you are? Who's doing the meditating? We, again, can adopt one of two authentic perspectives. Each has its own validity, and they're very different. And one is, as I sit down to meditate and cultivate compassion, I can do so with the sense, well, I'm not very compassionate, and I'm really quite, uh, quite hot-tempered and selfish and greedy and arrogant and deluded, and I suffer an awful lot, but there's hope for me. May there be hope. May there be hope. I hope so. Do I have a potential? They say. I'm not quite sure, but I believe it. It may not be true, but I hope so. So we can go from, and likewise for everybody else. You really suck, but there's hope for you, and so I hope that you can get your act together. But in the meantime, you really suck, and maybe you're hopeless, but I hope not. So that's one way to practice <laughs> compassion. And the other way is just to look through, to look through, cultivate some eyes of wisdom, and see, you know, and it's easy to do with yourself, to penetrate through the layers and layers of afflictions, of habituations, and so forth, and see, hey, the nature of your awareness, when you're resting in awareness of awareness, how many mental afflictions do you see? How many habitual propensities do you see when you're just resting in that luminosity, the clarity, the natural purity of your own awareness? That this is your ground state. This is, this is the core. That's just the substrate, let alone Buddha nature, Rikpa. And so if, as you're cultivating compassion, and let's say, compassion for yourself, if you're viewing this from the perspective, at least substrate consciousness, but if you haven't realized Rikpa, okay, then imagine it. But imagine this is your nature. You are pure. This is your essential nature. Buddha nature. And so the aspiration to be free of coarse suffering, the suffering of suffering and the causes, is just, may they be, may those veils be lifted. May I take a good bath. May I be cleansed so that my, my nature becomes manifest. But cultivating compassion from that place of purity. And likewise when we attend to others. So if I have a Buddha nature, you've got to have a Buddha nature. How could you not? You know? And so then to be viewing each other from that perspective, from that perspective to that perspective, attending to the purity in each one. This does make its way into the vernacular, into ordinary language. Um, what was that phrase? Speak to people's better instincts, or speak to their better nature, or there's other phrases like that. Speak. What's that? Appeal to their higher nature, address their higher nature, address their higher nature. Yeah, this is ordinary English. There's some real wisdom into that. There's some real wisdom in that. And, and we don't have to go all into metaphysics and, you know, cosmological things and so forth. But if we attend to people with their better nature, of course their, be- their best nature is Buddha nature. And so when we're engaging with, in times of conflict, in times of tension, strife, and so forth, if we engage with people and have a sense, you're basically an idiot, but now let's talk. You know, and I'd like you to be less of an idiot. Or you're really selfish, but it, let's talk, and I'd like you to be less selfish. You're mean-spirited and greedy, but let's kind of, let's see if we can work on that, you know. As soon as we address a person fusing their mental afflictions and their wrong behavior with their identity, and that's the target, that's the person we're addressing, is that fusion. You're really mean and selfish, and we speak to them at that. The chances are extremely good that as we address them in that way, we will arouse that sense of their own identity to come right back to us, and they will speak out of that. Because that's what we're inviting. That's what we're inviting, right? And so if we'd like for people to speak from a greater depth, 
from the purity that is there, the virtue they can manifest, have manifested, then to address them as such, I'm addressing a person who has a good heart, who's intelligent, who's well-meaning, who can be generous, and so forth. The person has Buddha nature. That's the one I'm addressing. And that person, sometimes your mind and your behavior is veiled, obscured, or distorted by mental afflictions and their effects. But if we're addressing the person, then with that compassion, with that warmth, then there's a real chance anyway, at least a chance, maybe they'll respond from that perspective. Whereas if we address them as a total, having been fused with their mental affliction, the chances are very high. They'll speak back, number one, defensively, but also the sense that there's probably some truth in what you said, and I am really mean, and I'm not going to demonstrate it and reaffirm what you just said. Screw you. You know, and they'll come right back from that same place. So, compassion for ourselves, compassion for others. Coming from a place of purity, addressing a place of purity. And avoid the dementors. <laughs> so, find a comfortable position. Soothe and calm your body, speech, and mind as an expression of kindness for yourself as you settle them in their natural state. Directing your attention towards yourself. Recall the liturgy when self-directed. Why couldn't I be free of blatant suffering and its underlying causes? May I be free. May I free myself. 
and may I be blessed, so that I may be so enabled. It's easy to wish to be free of suffering, but attend closely with intelligence, with memory, how your own states of mind and your own conduct, conduct in terms of ethics, states of mind, especially anger, have led not only to blatant suffering for others, but really lie at the root of so much suffering that you've inflicted upon yourself. Self-inflicted wounds Then it's time to move into the realm of possibility, imagining being free, yourself being free not only from blatant suffering itself, but from the underlying causes that you bring to reality, to bring yourself misery, and imagine becoming free with each in-breath. Imagine drawing in and extinguishing the darkness of blatant suffering and its underlying causes for yourself.
and imagine being free, both from the suffering and the underlying causes. Direct your attention outwards, especially to those you know to be suffering from this manifest or evident suffering. With each in-breath arouse a yearning they may be free of such suffering and its underlying causes. Practice this before.
and release all appearances and aspirations, and let your awareness rest in its own purity and luminosity. Many of you will recall that the false facsimile of compassion, where compassion goes when it goes astray, is depression, grief, hopelessness, despair. There could be a lot of tears for oneself, a lot of tears for others, but it's still not compassion, it's just despair, or sadness, depression. And then you'll recall that among the four measurables, the built-in, the built-in remedy, so which one? Empathetic joy. Yeah, exactly right. And how do we cultivate empathetic joy? Well, in a myriad of ways, but one, so effective, is to really have our antenna up. Really like, okay, like red alert. Red alert. Ah, what's up? For other people's virtues. Any act of kindness, any indication of compassion, generosity, any virtue. To really have our eyes wide open. It's so easy to look, you're looking for faults, for others' faults. That's easy. That comes naturally. That's habit. But to bring in another habit. And it's not rose-tinted glasses, it's really balancing out. Because people do have virtues. Even awful people have virtues. Really awful. Watch them closely enough for a 24-hour period, they're, they're bound to do something that's not awful. And maybe even a bit nice, you know. At least to their loved ones. To their dog. Really evil people, I bet they pet their dogs. And they feed them. So eyes open for that. Attend to it. And then, in that spirit of empathetic joy, 
whenever it seems appropriate, comment on it. Oh, that was very that was very kind of you to do that. I really appreciated you. Well, that was very nice. Oh, thank you for opening the door. That was very nice of you. You know, little things about season the day. Which just comments here. People like it. They really like it. And of course, we never do it falsely. We never do it to flatter. It's never manipulated. That, that's obviously. But if it's true, why not? You know, it's so easy to talk about others' faults. Why not make it just as easy to talk about their virtues? And then for this level of compassion, I'm weaving these two together. Atten uh, speak to people's better nature? Yeah? Well, we can't do it if we haven't paid attention to it. That which we don't pay attention to isn't real for us. We don't even notice. It doesn't count. So William James all over again. So as we are attending to others' virtues, the act of kindness, wisdom, and so forth, as we attend it, then we have some we have some capital. There's something that's real that we've attended to. And so then, when people behave badly, minds dominated by mental afflictions, and we need to engage with them, to direct, to address them, to work with them, collaborate with them. If we if we have recalled by paying close attention, their virtues then we don't need to act on just faith, subterrate consciousness, bliss, luminosity, blah, 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 and Buddha nature and all of that. I mean, if you have that faith, excellent. But there is a level we don't have to go to faith. We can go to experience, and that is if we witness the virtues in other people. That's not faith. So I, I saw that. You're really nice to your dog. You hate all your neighbors, but you're nice to your dog. <laughs> well, I'm going to talk to the person who's really nice to his dog. Howdy, neighbor. How's your dog? <laughs> you know? And so if it's... if if we focus on that and we know it to be true, then when we engage with difficult people in the family, the workplace, and so forth and so on, if we've seen some virtue, some goodness anywhere, then hold that in mind when you're engaging with them. There's a person, I'm speaking to a person who's displayed that virtue, speak to that. There's something good there. It's not faith, it's not deep, it's not esoteric. It's something you've witnessed. Speak to that and then see how that can grow and move out of the darkness. Probably just more skillful psychological means. I think it's more skillful. I know whenever people treat me like a creep, I tend to be creepy. <laughs> Enjoy your day. <laughs>